think about how, how my decisions and actions. This isn't on? Uh, two weeks in a row. Man. I even checked it. Anyway, let's start over. Legacies. I think it can be good to think about legacies that we, that we leave behind us. Um, think about how, how what we do, my, my actions, my decisions, they, they have uh, effect, they have impact, not just on me, but on, on uh, others that, uh, that come behind me, things we do, how we treat people, even the words that we say uh, can, can all form our legacy. The problem is that sometimes a person's legacy can, can kind of take on its own life. Uh, in the area of words, for example, sometimes a person is wrongly remembered for saying something that they never actually said. It's kind of a kind of an interesting phenomenon. For example, who said this? Just tell me who said this. I cannot tell a lie. George Washington, right? That's what we're taught. George Washington, right? We're taught that, you know, he, he was confronted by his cutting down of a cherry tree, and that was, that was his response. I cannot tell a lie. The problem is that the whole thing's a myth. Really, I mean, it's, it's been documented that Washington, one of, it, one of Washington's first biographers, Mason Locke Weems, made up that story. And then it found its way into a McGuffey reader, which went all over the country, and here we are today still attributing that quote to George Washington. But best we can tell, it never happened. He never said it. Um, what about this one? Uh, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. Yeah, Lombardi, right? Nope. <laughs> nope. I mean, it's, it's attributed to him, and he did say it, but the first person who said it, it's attributed to, is UCLA coach uh, Red Sanders. So sorry, Jacob, if I burst your bubble about uh, good Packers coach there, but... Uh, yeah, um, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Einstein, right? Problem is, nowhere has that ever been documented that he ever said or wrote that. Right? It's crazy how these things work out in this way. Um, one more for this morning. Who said this? Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Anybody know who that would have been? I think I heard, yeah, St. Francis of Assisi. That's who we attribute that quote to. But you've picked up on the theme by now. There's no proof of that, that he ever said that, that he ever wrote such a quotation. Now, regardless of where that one specifically came from, I, I do want to linger on that one just a bit this morning. Preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. You know, we could pick that quote apart from a theological perspective, um, yeah, you know, after all, I, I think it, it kind of leads us to underemphasize the importance of verbal proclamation of the gospel. But the main point of the quote, I think, is something to deeply consider. It, it causes us to think about how the gospel is not proclaimed through us solely because of the words that we speak, but that the way in which we live our lives can and should be a powerful proclamation of the gospel message. Now, now, the flip side of that statement then is if we proclaim the gospel message but then live out something completely different in our lives, then we ought not expect others to place much stock in the gospel that we proclaim. 
So, so that's kind of that's kind of what we'll be looking at this morning. The the, the passage we, that we will be challenged by today, Titus chapter two, I would say is is Exhibit one A for the argument that our actions ought to proclaim the gospel. What we do in our lives matters, and it's not just what we do when we're here at church, but but as Titus is is directed to to teach the believers in, on Crete. What we do in our daily lives, especially at home, matters greatly in the proclamation of the gospel. So I'd encourage you to turn with me to to Titus chapter 2 and follow with me. I'll read the first uh, 10 verses as we start this morning. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. And again, this is Paul writing to Titus and says, But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their, ma- to their own masters in everything, They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, in the very first verse there, verse 1, Paul sets the foundation for for what he's going to say in the rest of the paragraph. He, He directs Titus to teach the believers on Crete what accords with sound doctrine. Now let's go back for, for just a second to, to chapter 1, verse 1. And remember, Paul, Paul already wrote that, that the faith of God's people and their knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. Faith, knowledge of truth, it leads to godliness, is what Paul says in the opening of his letter. Now I think the terms truth in chapter 1, verse 1, and sound doctrine in chapter 2, verse 1, they reference the same thing. And, and, and we often hear the word doctrine and, and probably start thinking about different doctrinal beliefs within certain traditions, within certain church bodies. And quite often those, those doctrinal beliefs that we think of are, are important things, but non-essential things to the gospel. So even though we might be tempted to think that way, what Paul's talking about here when he says teach what accords with sound doctrine, he is thinking about the essentials. He is thinking about the truth of the gospel message, and we're going to see that as we get down to the end of chapter 2. So he's not talking about Titus, you know, you need to make sure you, you, you teach properly about end times and, 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 and beginning times with creation, and he's not, he's not saying all these other important doctrines, but non-essential doctrines. He's saying This is gospel. Titus, you need to teach what accords with the truth of the gospel. And everything that he's going to go on to say in verses 2 through 10, 
is simply a description of what godliness looks like within each group of people when the gospel is lived out. He's going to give specific examples. He's giving us a clear vision of what gospel transformation ought to look like in our lives. And that's whether we we're, uh, consider ourselves to be an older man, an older woman, a younger woman, or a younger man. He does an example. He, he, it doesn't matter. He covers it all in the example that he gives. So, you know, if we kind of think about this logically, we come to understand that if the gospel transforms a person into this list, into the things that Paul writes here, then this description must not have been true of that person before God's work took place within them. It's not transformation if nothing changes. And so what Paul talks about here is what, what the gospel leads to in a person's life when God works in and through them. So let's just kind of go back over that list real quickly just to see how a person who is transformed by the gospel can be expected to be described. And he starts with older men. He says older men, you know, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Uh, he says older women, reverent, in control of tongue and impulses, teachers of good. Um, young women devoted to husbands and children, self-controlled, working at home. Now, I, I want to pause quickly and just kind of highlight that phrase because that's one that this phrase, this specific verse has been used to teach that all Christian wives and mothers ought to be homemakers and cannot work outside of the home. And, and I would say it has been wrongly used to argue that Christian wives and mothers cannot have a job outside of the home. I mean, we have to remember that our modern situation where a, where a woman is freely able to work outside the home is not what Paul has in mind here. That, that is not the context in which he wrote this letter. So we have to be careful that we're not pressing his statement to say something that he never intended it to say. You know, what we need to do is seek to understand what enduring principle is Paul driving at here? What did he have in mind? And then how do we apply that to our context today? And so the question becomes, what is that enduring principle? What, what is Paul driving at? And, and there's lively debates about that question, about what exactly Paul means in that context. So just asking that question doesn't always lead to agreement across the board. But, but the principle that I see Paul communicating in, in this context is that, that a wife and a mother's highest earthly concern is for her husband and children. Uh, her own desires for, for career advancement or honor in the workplace ought, to be, ought, ought not to be placed above her, her husband and children. And to be fair, I think that applies to fathers as, and husbands as well. That a father and husband's own desire for career advancement or honor in the workplace should not be placed above his wife and children either. But as I was reading some different, uh, different theologians and commentators, I, I came across a, uh, just a section that I thought, I thought was, was well-written, very helpful, and so I just want to read this. Uh, this is Kent Hughes, his, his thoughts on, on uh, this phrase here. He says, The responsibilities of younger women are first outwardly oriented. They are to love their husbands and children. In that day of formal and arranged marriages, a woman who truly and deeply loved her husband 
would stand out as a representative for the gospel in Greco-Roman culture. Thus, Paul makes commitment to family the highest priority of a young wife. This instruction still has bearing on modern discussions, even if it is not the absolute command for women to stay at home that some may desire. The apostle without question ranks a wife's obligations to care for her husband and children over her personal benefit or fulfillment. Any woman who makes career status or financial advantage a higher priority in life, in her life than the welfare of her marriage, children, or home transgresses scripture as well as, as well as the signals of a heart sensitive to God's spirit. Perhaps this is the reason Paul urges that young women not only be taught to be productive at home, but also to be kind. A sensitive heart will not get so caught up in the routines of homemaking that compassion for a husband's or child's needs gets lost, nor will such a heart be dissuaded by the callousness of the secular world regarding the value of the homemaking routines. So in other words, I, you know, if I summed that up in, in a short statement, I would say Paul calls young women to live sacrificially for their husbands and children. I think that's what Paul drives at here. And, and I think we need to hang on to that for just a moment because there's a powerful, powerful reason that Paul highlights that as a sign of gospel transformation within a young woman. And I would say that that would apply to young men, older men, older women as well. But Paul lists it here with younger women. So we need to hang on to that, that, that living sacrificially because we're going to see it come into play as we get down to the end of the chapter. So, so back to the list, right? What does it look like when a, when a person's transformed by the gospel? So younger women, devoted to husband and children, self-controlled, working at home. Younger men, and, and I believe uh, verse 6, it says younger men. Verse 7 and 8, Paul kind of goes to talk to Titus individually, but because I think Titus would be included in younger men, I think 6, 7, and 8 all apply, I would say, to younger men. So they're called to be self-controlled, a model of good works, a person of integrity, and then bond servants in verses 9 and 10, well-pleasing, agreeable, honest. Um, I think we can easily sum up all those things by saying that if God's work of transformation does not take place within a person, then they can expect to be living in, in such a way that they lack control and are first and foremost focused upon themselves and their own desires. And, and, and it would make no difference which group a person falls into. But if a person does hear and receive the gospel message and does allow God's work of transformation to take place within them, then they will be increasingly marked by self-control and sacrifice in their interactions with others. And again, it makes no difference which group a person would fall into. It was, it was essential in Paul's eyes that the believers on Crete live out this inner transformation. Why? Why was that such a big deal? Look at verse 11 here. 11 down through the end of the chapter. For, and again, that word tells us, in light of all Paul written in verses 1 through 10, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So why is it such a big deal that God's transformation is outwardly seen in the lives of God's people? It's because the grace of God had appeared and it was bringing salvation for everyone, bringing salvation for all people. We gotta remember the setting on Crete. The truth was not something highly esteemed on this island. It was known for its falsehood. It was known for people who, who lied regularly. Falsehood reigned on Crete. The believers on Crete could have gone around proclaiming the gospel with words, speaking the truth of the gospel with words, until they were blue in the face, but the reality was that they probably weren't going to get very far doing such a thing because of that context. So, you know, you, could, you can almost hear somebody on Crete say, you oh, know, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Yeah, right. Yeah, right, I don't believe that. You know, that, that's just another lie. We can just disregard that. The words of the believers were not going to be enough to break through in that culture, especially that culture that, that was so steeped in falsehood. But if their actions supported their words, right, if their actions matched up with the words, if their actions were as radical is the words that they spoke, if their actions put into practice the principles that they proclaimed, if their actions caused the people on Crete to be confronted with a real physical example of the character of Jesus Christ, then there just might be hope for the gospel to take root and for the transformation that God brings to continue to spread outward. It, 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 I, I kept coming back to this story in the Gospels. Do you remember the story where Jesus heals the paralytic? This story where, where uh, this man couldn't walk, and so his friends um, took him, carried him to Jesus on a mat, and then lowered him down through the roof in front of Jesus. And, and in that, in that um, um, story, the first thing that Jesus says to that man is, your sins are forgiven. I mean, I just try and put myself in that situation. It's crazy to think about that. You know, he's lowered down through the roof. He can't walk. Obviously, they want him to be healed physically. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And that's great, isn't it? I mean, that's wonderful. That is, that is exactly what that man's deepest need was, whether he realized that or not. He needed to have his sins forgiven. But there were those present, I mean, remember it was a full house, that's why they had to go up to the roof and lower him down. There were those present who doubted the fact that Jesus had the power and the authority to forgive that man's sins. If Jesus had stopped right there with inner, just inner transformation, there, there would have been no way to, in that moment, physically prove to those doubters that he was indeed able to forgive this man's sins. 
You can't see it, right? That's an inner transformation. I can't see forgiven sins within a person. And so Jesus went on to provide an outward sign, an outward transformation in his own words, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus basically said, I'm going I'm to make this guy walk so that you know I forgave his sins. Right? The truth wasn't just an inward truth, an inward transformation. Jesus said, I'm going to show you outwardly so that you know. That man getting up off his mat and walking out of the house was the outward proof that Jesus forgave his sins. His physical healing was the proof of his spiritual healing inside of himself. I think that is at the heart of what needs to take place on Crete, right? I mean, you can, you can almost hear him saying, oh, this Jesus you talk about sharing the gospel, he can forgive your sins, oh, whatever, prove it, right? Prove it that that really is true. And Paul tells the believers to prove it by living it out, by letting this gospel transformation inside of them show itself by how they live their lives. He wants the, the sound doctrine, he wants the truth that they believe to come out, this truth of the gospel to be displayed. You know, our, our forgiveness of sins, the, the, the promise of an eternity in heaven with God, that is a wonderful reality. That, that is a, a sure reality upon which we can firmly place our hope. And, and I think that's why Paul mentions it in verse 13 here. We long for the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, because it's going to be at that moment when it will be plainly evident to all that our sins have been forgiven. There will not be any question at that moment but we're not there yet, are we? That, that moment, that appearing, that second coming of Jesus has not happened yet. And so, through God's gracious work within us, we are, we are trained then to renounce ungodliness and, and, and worldly passions, as Paul says in verse 12. There's other evidences of this internal transformation. Right? Even though it's not plainly obvious to everybody that all our sins have been forgiven yet, there are other evidences of what God is doing. That, that old way of life, which lacks self-control and is focused solely upon selfish desires, it's removed. That the, the transformation within us teaches us to say no to those kinds of things. And in its place, we say yes to, to as Paul says, a self-controlled, upright godly life in the present age. So saying no to one way of life and saying yes to another way of life, that is, that is the proof of what God has done within us. And so, so each group that Paul spoke to in verses 2 through 10, they are called to, to that kind of life, to that kind of display, living out the gospel transformation in their specific setting. And as they do so, I think they present perhaps the most powerful argument for the truth of the gospel that a person could ever make. 
I really think so. What, you know, why do the older men, you know, why do they need to press on and being clear-minded and sound in love? Why do the older women need to pour time and energy into teaching younger women? Why do the younger women sacrifice themselves for the sake of husbands and children? Why, why do younger men restrain themselves and strive to, strive to be people of integrity? Uh, why, why do the bond servants treat their masters with such respect and honesty? And I think those questions have no other answer than what Paul says in verse 14. It's because they've been transformed by Jesus, verse 14 says, who gave himself for us to redeem us. Why, why do those people live that way? Because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Why do older men live self-controlled sacrifice for others? Because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Why do older women, and you go down the list, why? Because of Jesus. You know, the, the reality of the gospel can easily be dismissed if, it's, if it exists and is presented in words only. Words are important. I'm not saying we don't verbally proclaim the gospel. We do. But if it's only words, it can be easily dismissed. That was the issue with Jesus, with the paralytic. That was the issue on the island of Crete. And I, I would think we face the same thing today, that, that words of truth can be pushed aside. But the reality of the gospel, when the gospel is lived out, that is so much tougher to dismiss. When our words are supported by actions, that is so much tougher to dismiss. Again, that was true when Jesus physically healed the paralytic. That would have been true on the island of Crete as the believers lived out this transformation. And again, I, I'd say that's true in our culture as well. When we live out that transformation, it powerfully proclaims and gives validity to the gospel words that we speak. So the grace of God has appeared, as Paul says. As a result, salvation's offered to all people. Uh, that's the most wonderful message that, that our world has ever heard. That, that is the message that needs to be proclaimed in our world. Salvation has appeared. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And if we're going to be serious about proclaiming that message in our families, in workplaces, in, in schools, in neighborhoods, in communities, then, then we have to be serious about that inner transformation showing itself outwardly in how we live. And we can't overlook the, the fact that the primary place that Paul sees that being lived out is at home. It's at home, and I know our households are, are, are a little different in structure and makeup than they would have been then, but I think the, the truth still applies. And I think we can probably all admit that our homes are the toughest place to live out this gospel transformation. I think if we're honest, it can be very difficult, right? The ones that we are closest to, the ones that we are with day in, and day out, man, that can be a tough place to live out this godliness. But if God's transforming power is allowed to impact the relationships we have with those that are the very closest to us, then I think we'll see that, that we'll see that transformation overflowing into all of our other relationships as well. And we're going to see the gospel that we proclaim verbally backed up 
with action. We're gonna see it validated by, by how we live. We can't assume that our faith in the gospel and the forgiveness of our sins has no bearing on our everyday life. We, we can't ever assume that. We either support the truth of the gospel by how we live or, or we undercut, we deny the message of the gospel by how we live. It's, it, it's one or the other. And, and what I love is when you look back at verses 2 through 10, I mean, look back with me. What, what happens when, when gospel transformation is lived out daily in our lives? Look at, look at verse 5. What does Paul say? The word of God is not reviled. Verse 8, opponents are put to shame and have nothing evil to say about us. Uh, verse 10, in everything, the doctrine of God our Savior is adorned. I mean, that's what happens when the gospel lives itself out through us. So it doesn't matter if we're older men, older women, younger women, younger men. You know, uh, whatever situation we find ourselves, we have the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to a culture which doubts our words, but is going to have a much tougher time doubting the outcome, doubting the actions of the gospel and the work of God within us. Again, we, you know, we go back to the story of Jesus and the paralytic. So Jesus healed the man physically. <clears throat> he got up, he walked. It was the proof of this inner transformation. And after that encounter, those who were present, they responded with amazement and they gave glory to God and they exclaimed, we never saw anything like this. Never saw anything like this. I, I have faith that, that as our daily lives exhibit the, the forgiveness, the humility, the sacrifice that are the hallmarks of the gospel message, people are going to be amazed and they're going to give glory to God and, and they're going to explain, exclaim, we never saw anything like this. I, I have faith that that is what will happen. And so, so we're called to proclaim the good news verbally for sure but outwardly displaying it by how we live, letting this inner transformation come out and, and affect how we live, especially at home, especially with those who are closest to us. You know, what Paul wrote to Titus on that island of Crete, it, it's so applicable in our culture today, our culture that is searching for truth, I mean, we're, we're, we're searching desperately for it in so many different areas of life. There's so much falsehood, half lies out there. We've got the truth and we proclaim the truth and, and we need to validate it by how we live so that people will know that it's not just another way of thinking, it's not just another way of living, that it truly is the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of God's work within us. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's come to God to prayer and, and ask him for the, the strength and the wisdom to, to do that, because that, that can be, that's a high calling, right? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we know ourselves. We know that uh, the temptation to sin is still there. Let, let's ask God to empower us to live this out. So God, we come to you now and, and we do ask that. Uh, first, we, we are so, 
We're so thankful for, for your work. We're so thankful that, that because of your grace that salvation has come for all people, yes, but for me and for us here. Without your grace, that, uh, that salvation is ever elusive. And so we thank you for that this morning. We, we, we worship you because of how you have utterly transformed us. You have indeed forgiven our sins. And God, we want, we want others to experience that as well. We desire them to know who you are and your love for them and to experience that same salvation and forgiveness. So God, would you help us in how we live to bring honor to you, to, to love others well, but also in that to proclaim the gospel every day just through how we live our lives, especially at home. God, we know that we, know that we love our, our spouses and our kids and our families deeply, but we also know it can be so difficult at times to, to live out that love. And so would you empower us in that? Would you strengthen us? Would you, would you give us wisdom? Would you, would you bring us to repentance when we fail to do that? God, we want to boldly proclaim your love and your forgiveness. And we want to do it in word, but we want to do it in action as well. And God, we thank you ahead of time. We thank you now for what you will do as a result of that, God, for how, how the truth of the gospel will take root as that transforming work is put on display. We give you praise. God, we know it's all because of you and your love for us and your work in our lives. And because of that, we say thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.